This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 110 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. In this episode, I wanted to share a special sneak peek of one of the trainings from the School of Clinical Leadership. Specifically, this training was taken from the course on social skills. So, the specific name of the course is the Social Language Roadmap. So, this training is about how we support empathy and situational awareness and how to provide social skills support in a way that is evidence-based and neurodiversity affirming. One of the most common questions that I get 
is surrounding masking? Is it traumatic for kids? But at the same time, we also want to teach them to be successful. How do we understand all of those nuances? So in this training, I aim to answer some of those questions because what we want to do is give kids the skills that they need in order to form those healthy relationships. That does require us to be able to read situations, to understand the perspectives of others, and sometimes modify our behavior in the interest of building those relationships. But at the same time, we don't wanna do it in a way that is really stressful and totally just ignores our own needs. This training is taken directly from the School of Clinical Leadership. So there might be some terms that I am sharing in this training that are covered earlier on in the actual course. So if you are interested in learning more about the entire framework that I teach for social skills as well as executive functioning and also how to get your team on board with this kind of support, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership where I give school clinicians an entire framework for putting executive functioning support in their building. So not just what you do in therapy, but how you actually get your entire team on board so that students get support across their day. So to check out the School of Clinical Leadership, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Again, I wanted to share a sneak peek from that program so that you can see how powerful this is in understanding all of these difficult questions that we have to answer when it comes to supporting our students in a way that is both accepting of their differences, but at the same time, teaches them the skills that they need to be resilient. Again, that's drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. it's Karen. And in this video, I am going to talk about empathy and situational awareness, because this is really something that needs to be layered on to all of the strategies that you are going to do. And I know that sometimes when people come through this program or content like it, it's not exactly what they expect, especially if they're a therapist who's used to doing a traditional therapy type of format where there's a specific activity that you do with your kids during your session, and then you send them off on their way. So obviously this is something where it's, it feels a little bit messier than that type of scenario, because there's not a specific curriculum scope and sequence. It's going to be highly dependent on allowing the, the child to experience varied situations and because of that, it's really hard to give any kind of pre-made curriculum because that child's unique experiences that they're going to have to read are going to be dependent on them. So it's hard to give any kind of pre-made scripts or anything like that. But what I can do is allow you to have a problem-solving process, just as what you are doing for them is giving them a problem-solving process as well. Because as you know, if you give a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, it's just not going to work. And there's going to be that shallow compensation that I've been talking about. So I wanted to talk about empathy and situational awareness, because when we are working with kids who have some type of 
challenge with social executive functioning. These are two things that come up a lot, especially with autistic individuals as well as individuals with ADHD. Now, I know I talk a lot about those two particular diagnoses, but the reason is because they're the most common. This, this can certainly apply to someone else who doesn't have an official diagnosis of either of those things, but they are showing some, some signs of executive dysfunction. But I wanted to talk about these two things to help you parse them out because there are going to be certain traits that might be associated with autism or ADHD that might help you to problem solve. Again, it's going to be highly dependent on the individual. You will have to kind of problem solve and troubleshoot and figure out what's going on with that individual child because regardless of what diagnosis they have, it is going to be specific to them, but I wanted to give you this information just to help you think about it and problem solve through it. So uh, using the diagnosis definitely can help narrow things and give you an idea of what could be going on, but just know that it's always going to be situation specific. So with that being said, I wanted to talk about some common misconceptions and clear up some confusion and then also share some current research on these two things. So one of the most common misconceptions about autistic people is that they're not interested in friends and relationships just because neurotypical people often interpret their behavior to mean that. But we know that that's not true. Typically, they want friends and relationships just as much as neurotypical people, but they often show it differently or the way that they connect is different than what neurotypical people would do. Some common ones that I can share just, just really quickly is that the way that they have conversations is different. So something that you might see in autistic people is that the way that they connect instead of as they're having a conversation, you know, again, a neurotypical person might expect you to make a comment that's relevant to what they just said, whereas an autistic person might think of a situation where they had a similar experience and might say something about themselves. And, and that's kind of a, a thing that they often do to connect. It comes off as sometimes know-it-all and one-upping, but really that's something that many of them do to connect or a lot of times they do what's known as info dumping, where they like to share a lot about a topic of interest. So again, that to a certain extent is something that is often misinterpreted by neurotypical people to mean, you know, they don't care, they're not interested in what I'm saying, whereas that's just a common way that they often interact. Now, again, as I've said before, it is relevant for both autistic people, um, people with ADHD and neurotypical people to be aware of what the expectations of conversations are, because if you want to be friends with people and you know that they like to interact in a certain way, a nice thing to do would be to allow them to <laughs> interact in the way that they want and kind of take turns so that both of you get to do get, get to engage in the way that you want. So it does make sense to make them aware of these different conversational cues. We're not necessarily saying that they always have to act in that way, but it is relevant for them to have that understanding so that they know what's expected of them and how it might come across if they are acting differently. Now, of course, it's it's very important to raise awareness of how autistic people tend to communicate. Um, 
So it should go both ways. But again, because there are fewer autistic people than neurotypical people, uh, it's, it is a little bit more challenging just because it's less common. Another thing to note, as I was saying, is that autistic people don't always notice conversational cues in the same way that neurotypical people do. So as a result, they may not infer in the same way, or they might need the cues to be more direct. And this often makes them appear less empathetic to neurotypical people. So for example, there are a lot of subtle cues where we might just in conversation, say something that's kind of open-ended and it relies on our conversational partner to just know what we want them to do next. And an autistic person might not notice those cues. And so as a result, they might not do whatever that person is expecting them to do or say what that person is expecting them to say. So in this case, it certainly can be beneficial to raise awareness within the neurotypical world and educate people about these different communication styles, but also it's uh, to the autistic person's benefit to realize that they might be missing out on these cues and that they might need things to be more direct so that they can advocate for themselves. So that when they are talking with someone who's an unfamiliar person or they're going into a situation where they know that they might need to infer a lot of information, it can be beneficial for them to know that they might need to ask for things to be explained more clearly. This could be relevant for both social interactions and academic or vocational settings. Just letting someone know that you need things to be clearly spelled out for you and boundaries to be communicated clearly can be very beneficial. Again, awareness of your needs and how your brain works is key because if if people are not able to have that awareness of what they need, they're not going to be able to ask for it. And if they are not aware of what might be expected in all the different environments where they might be interacting, then they're not going to know what those expectations are. So in order for them to be able to advocate, this is really important and giving people the tools to be able to advocate for themselves is going to be really important in raising awareness so that over time people do become more accepting. And so we become more accepting of us as a society. And it is possible in many cases, if part of the issue is an executive functioning issue, those are certainly skills that we can teach to make those cues easier to read as well. Now with ADHD, it's a little bit different because a lot of times they might have the ability to read the social cues, but they aren't reading the situation due to executive functioning issues that impact self-regulation. So it's more of a self-awareness and situational awareness issue rather than just that they can't read those cues. Often the cues are there, they're just not paying attention to them, and they are not quite managing their impulses in a way that allows them to to cue into them and respond in a way that, that might be expected in that situation or that would allow them to be successful in that situation. So again, I'm talking about specific diagnoses here to help you troubleshoot because if somebody has a diagnosis, this is going to help you to to be able to figure out what might be going on in that particular situation. But again, this this isn't necessarily always the case. There, There might be times when people might have a diagnosis of ADHD and autism, and you do have to figure out 
for that particular situation? Are they not reading the cues or are they just not reading the situation and attending to the cues? So again, with ADHD, a lot of times it tends to be more of just reading the scene. Whereas with autism, there is more of a difficulty in reading those cues, even if they are reading the scene. But obviously this isn't an exact science because even just how ADHD and autism present in different people can be different and people can develop skills over time, that kind of thing. But again, this is just more information for you to know some of the tendencies so that you can narrow down what's going on with specific students. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the empathy because this is a common area of misconception. And I've seen a lot of things posted on social media about, you know, this is true, this isn't true. And so I wanted to just share a recent study that was a meta-analysis on empathy and autism to just share some of the confusion and, and where some of that confusion lies and, and what actually is the case. So traditionally, people have assumed that, that autistic people lack empathy. However, the research is mixed as to whether this is an accurate assumption and results of this meta-analysis showed that empathy is dependent on number one, how you define empathy, and also that is component specific. So basically meaning that when researchers have actually defined what empathy is, there are different pieces to it and different kinds of empathy. And whether or not people with autism have it or are able to tap into it depends on what component it is. And so that can help us to troubleshoot and figure out where they might need support or where they might need to advocate and communicate why they might be interacting the way that they are. So in this particular meta-analysis, and again, keep in mind when we're looking at a meta-analysis, we're looking at a bunch of studies from you know, years and years, and we're, we're compiling all of that data together. So what happens with the meta-analysis is that there might be different results if you look at the studies individually. And then when we're looking at the meta-analysis, we're putting it all together. So if you look back at the research over the years, you might see things that are a little bit different than these overall conclusions. But the general, the general conclusions is that it's a little less clear than what we have thought. But we know that people with autism do have empathy. It's just that it, it depends what kind. And it also depends on how well they're able to just pay attention to and process transient information. Because remember that there's an issue with working memory and executive functioning. And so sometimes it's not that they don't care or that they don't understand that other people have feelings. It's just that all of this information is coming in at once. And sometimes it can be difficult to process because they might not be able to attend to all of these things at once. And so that's why we need to train those skills, but also to help them to communicate with other people about their needs. A common thing that comes up all the time is that it's difficult for them to make eye contact because then there's, you know, you're looking at a person's face and there's all kinds of nonverbal cues coming in. And that could be overstimulating and just information overload. And then there's 
what the person is actually saying, and they have to process that at once. And so a lot of times having to attend to both things at one time can be really overwhelming. So having to do that and having to engage in a behavior that that typically people think to mean, you know, I'm listening to you, a lot of times having to focus on that can actually take away from their ability to attend to things that are important. So again, in that in a situation like that, where they might not be able to do something in a way that might be expected, it might make sense for them to just say, Hey, I'm, I'm listening, but I'm, I'm, even though I'm not looking at you, it's just, I'm, I'm going to look over here so that I can pay attention to what you're saying or something like that. And, and that's just one example, but let me get into what this meta-analysis actually showed. And these are just some of the, the overall conclusions was that state cognitive empathy was impaired in autistic individuals. So with state empathy, and again, these, these, uh, there's, there's some debate among scientists about what empathy is, but with state empathy, this is more situation specific and transient. So obviously people might feel differently in different situations. And when you're interacting with a a person that you know, they might feel differently in one situation versus another situation. And that's just dependent on the context. And so when you have to depend on the context, you have to depend on a lot of information at once and really be able to read the situation. And again, rely on transient information and so when we when when people have to do that and process a lot of incoming information that is more difficult. Now cognitive empathy again cognitive has to do with just knowledge of people's feelings and their body language. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying before where there's a lot of aspects of social communication where sometimes there's just strict knowledge of you know this behavior means this So what this study found was that that was impaired in autistic autistic individuals compared to neurotypical individuals, meaning that when they have to process a lot of information at once, having to do with the knowledge of how a person might be acting in that particular context that might be changing and very complex, that that was harder for them. But trait empathic concern was actually better than neurotypical individuals. So with trait empathy, that has to do more with something that has to do with a person's personality. So that means that if you know somebody and you know how they tend to feel and react and you're more familiar with them, then again, that's, that's less transient. So, so that is something that isn't necessarily context specific, but it's more like, you know, you have a friend, you know, their personality, you know, how they tend to react kind of thing. And then empathic concern obviously is concerned for other people's feelings and emotional states. So that that was actually better than neurotypical individuals. So again, this is where, you know, we see that, yes, it's hard for them to process that incoming information, but it doesn't mean that they don't care and they aren't concerned about other people's feelings. And it also doesn't mean that they don't necessarily know that other people have feelings. They do, and they are concerned about them. Many times they are very concerned about them. It's just that a lot of times there's just a lot of information coming in at once and they might not be able to attend to all of it at once and and as a result, be able to react on the spot. So when the researchers compared state empathic accuracy 
in neurotypical individuals and autistic individuals, it was actually the same. So again, remember that state empathy has to do with more of a specific context, not something that's more, more consistent, like a person's personality. It has to do with a specific situation. And empathic accuracy is just more the ability of a person to actually experience and feel the feelings of another person. So this is more of a kind of an intuitive, actual feeling of somebody else's emotional state. So many times what that could mean is that within the situation, the person might be actually sharing and feeling what other people are feeling, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their behaviors are going to look the same. So what that could be interpreted to mean is that autistic people might experience empathy, but they just show it differently and they might show it in a way that's not as common. So as a result, they're interpreted to be less empathetic when really they're just, they're, they're feeling everybody else's feelings, even on the spot, even when there is a lot of information coming in, they're still experiencing those things, but they're just not doing it in the same way. And they're not responding in the same way. So the way that I interpret this is that when we've got cognitive empathy and empathic accuracy, we've got the cognitive empathy, which could maybe impact the way that somebody is able to problem solve and then regulate their behavior on the spot and just make sense of the information that's coming in from a cognitive aspect. But then empathic accuracy is kind of that more intuitive and just, again, feeling of someone's emotional state. So, you know, again, there, there might be cases where that person is just experiencing the same thing, but they're just experiencing it in a different way and it looks different. So I know that this can be kind of difficult to decipher as far as what's going on, but the main thing to take away from this is that it's, it doesn't mean that, you know, just because somebody is reacting in a way that's different, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't care or that they don't want to engage or that they're not socially motivated. What it means is that there's just a lot of information coming in at once that's difficult to process. And so that's why it's so important for us to focus on that social executive functioning because what that's going to do is help them to read the situation and prime themselves to do that so that they can improve and that ability to process that incoming information or prepare themselves to attend to the things that they need to attend to in order to help themselves be successful. And, and again, I think that the fact that that state cognitive empathy was impaired, again, that, that does show a link to executive functioning. And when I say that we want autistic individuals to be able to read the scene and understand what other people are doing, I am not saying that we're, or we want them to just act in a way that's neurotypical, but the only way that they're going to be able to find a way to be successful in a situation in a way that's true to them is for them to have that understanding and be able to read situations. Because ultimately, you know, we can, we can teach people to read situations and use strategies. We can't ever force anyone to use any particular strategy. And if we don't teach people to do this and really understand situations, then what's going to result is that shallow compensation and camouflaging 
And it does come off kind of awkward because again, with, with the state cognitive empathy, they might be doing something that's not necessarily consistent with how they should be acting in that situation based on what other people might expect. And so that is, again, it's, it's going to make it seem more awkward if they aren't necessarily tapping into those skills. So it's really important to remember this because, because that can be a key motivator, just being able to connect with other people in you know, getting kids to be motivated to, to work on these kinds of things. Because many times they do want to have connections, just how they show it is a little bit different. Now, when we're talking about things like social cues versus situational awareness, we want to be really clear on the difference between these two things. Again, a lot of times people with ADHD might be aware of social cues. They're just not able to self-regulate and attend to them, whereas people with autism might have a harder time processing those social cues. Again, that's not a hard and fast rule, but that is a, a general tendency and so we want to make sure that we're paying attention to both of these things. When we're supporting individuals with social skills difficulties, and I use that in big air quotes because we know that social skills difficulties often just means executive functioning difficulties. But when we're supporting these individuals, we need to understand the difference between these two things. And often the difference between whether somebody is able to understand those social cues from a cognitive perspective, again, that cognitive empathy, um, it, it can explain that framework of a skill deficit versus a performance deficit. So again, if somebody has a skill deficit, yes, there might be some things where we might need to, to do to prime them for a situation and explain to them why people are acting the way that they're acting or why people might expect the things that they expect. So that is a situation where it might make sense to have a, a some kind of a session to kind of troubleshoot that and talk through those things in a separate pullout situation. That is a way that a therapy session could be used. Again, this isn't a, an adult led, like these are the rules of social situations kinds of things. It needs to be more situation specific where we are taking situations from that child's life and figuring out what the specific cues are in that situation. So this can be done preemptively for things coming up, but then it can be also done when we are going back and kind of debriefing situations that happened and talking about, okay, what do we learn and how are we going to apply that to a, a a, a, an upcoming situation and other, other things that come up. Again, this needs to be paired with those cues within the real life setting, but that is a way that you could use your therapy session again. And that could be something if, if somebody just cognitively isn't aware of those certain social cues, then that might be something that you could, that you could do there. Now, again, we need to differentiate that what has been traditionally called a performance deficit, but really can be often attributed more to that situational awareness where they, they are aware of what they're supposed to do, but they're not reading the situation to know when they should apply it, or they might be aware of, of what social cues mean, but they're just not showing that awareness of, of, of what's going on in that situation. And, and that could be due to not reading the room. It could also be due to just not having that self-awareness of being able to on the spot, be able to 
look at what they're doing and see how other people are reacting to it. And that has to do with situational awareness as well. And, and again, that is something where we do need to make sure that we are debriefing and giving specific feedback within the situation because it has to be really tangible and specific. If you're doing these kind of pre-made social skills activities, that's just often really abstract and kids might not necessarily know how to take that information and apply it to a real life situation. It just needs to be really tangible for them to be able to make sense of it and start to develop that episodic memory that allows them to take that information and apply it to another situation. We just need to make sure that we're doing this over and over again within specific contexts that the child is experiencing in order for this to actually have an effect on their behavior and improve their ability to read situations. Another thing to keep in mind with, with kids with ADHD is that they do tend to have that positive illusory bias where they tend to overemphasize or, or assume that they're better at a skill than they really are. And as a result, that might cause them to misread situations where, you know, for example, they're on a sports team and their coach is yelling at them because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And they think that, you know, it's not fair or something like that because they don't realize that they, they might've done something that, that, that resulted in that behavior, for example. And, and that again has to do with that, uh, that situational awareness and their ability to self-regulate and self-monitor their own behavior and, and monitor their own performance. And the only way to build that is to just repeatedly give them that feedback within that situation. And sometimes we do have to allow some natural consequences to happen for them to draw that connection because over time, you know, you explaining facts to them and, you know, showing them that they did or didn't do something correct is going to be less effective than them just seeing that, you know, they, they made a mistake on something and seeing the natural consequence to that. So those are things that are going to be really key. Again, those real life situations are going to be really important. So how do we actually prime for situational awareness and social cues? What we really need to do as people supporting kids is take an inventory of all the situations where the child is in, especially the ones where they're struggling, and just really observe what's happening there and see what cues they are not attending to. Because if you're a person who just intuitively pays attention to those things, you might not even realize what cues you are, you are using on a regular basis. And you might have to play detective and just observe what's going on in that particular situation to figure out what, what things you might need to draw your, your students' attention to. And it's very difficult for me to be able to say, to, to predict what all is going to happen in all those situations. So the best thing for you to do is to have that regular inventory of where that student is struggling and to be able to observe that situation and notice their behaviors and figure out, okay, what things are they not paying attention to here? And what are they not just 
responding to that's resulting in them not self-regulating or not responding in a way that's allowing them to be successful. So that's going to be the first thing that you're going to want to do is just really take an inventory of that because that's going to inform what you're actually teaching them and what you're discussing with them and where you're going to give feedback. The other thing is that declarative language. So Again, remember that when we're doing this, we're not necessarily saying do this, do this, do this. We're not being direct with them. What we're doing is we're just, we're using indirect language to help them to pay attention to these different situational cues. So instead of saying go sit at your desk, you might say something like, oh, I wonder what the other students are doing right now. I wonder what you should be doing and how you should look. So what that's doing is it's it's not telling them the answer directly, but what it's doing is that it's drawing their attention to the cues that they need to pay attention to and then allowing them to problem solve through that situation so that they can start practicing those skills in a real life situation. The more that they do that and the more that they have to flex that muscle, the better they're going to be able to utilize situational awareness. The other thing is modeling your own self-talk and how you read situations. Even if this is something that you normally do silently, you're going to want to start doing it out loud. Um, Whether you're a teacher, whether you're a therapist, or whether you're a parent, you're going to want to start doing this out loud. And again, this this can be layered on top of that declarative language. And, And what you can do in order to figure out what declarative language to use And what self-talk to use is that you can use those situational cues. So if you've got a a child and, you know, you've gone through the situations where they need some support and you've kind of taken an inventory of, okay, they're not, you know, what things they're not paying attention to, then those are going to be the things where you're going to model your self-talk. So for example, if they're coming into their classroom and they're not really paying attention to the cues that show them what they should be doing, that maybe it's time for them to get to their desk and do their morning work or whatever it is, you might say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, you might model, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking into the room and I wonder what I should do. I probably should look at my, my book and see what's on my agenda for the morning and look at my list and, and see what things I need to do right now. And you might be modeling those things as you're doing them. So those are your internal thought processes. As you might do that, you might not normally say them out loud, but it's important that you do that here because remember that, you know, if if kids are not utilizing their executive functioning skills effectively, they're probably not engaging in that self-talk. And we need to model that because it's not happening internally for them. We need to make it external so that they can see it happening because that's the only way that they're going to learn how to do it. Specific feedback is always really key within those situations. So again, you've gone through, you've seen what situational cues they're not paying attention to. And so what we need to do is within those situations, we give them that specific feedback when they are using those cues effectively. So for example, oh, that was really great that you looked around the room to see that it was time to do your morning work and you got right to work. That's really great. I like how you read this, the room and figured out what you were supposed to be doing. So something like that, again, really specific, not just good job doing your work, but something more specific about their thought process. 
And then finally, we want to have varied experiences. We want kids to have as many different unique experiences as possible. So obviously, if you're in a school setting, you might have some very specific things on your agenda in the curriculum, but obviously you want to make those experiences as multi-sensory as possible. If you're a teacher, you know, that means that instead of just doing, doing things in a lecture format, you're doing things that are hands-on and, you know, again, teachers also do things like field trips, things like that. But then also this is something that you can do when you're, when you're talking with parents, if you're wanting to coach them, it's important that you share this information with them and let them know that how important it is for their kids to have varied experiences outside of school and how sometimes kids might be resistant to these things at first, but it really does help build these essential skills that they need. Now, before I wrap up, I wanted to just mention something, and actually I did not cite it on the slide, but I will cite it below this video, but it's some research and it's uh, the book specifically where I learned about it is in a book called What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite by David DeSalvo. And there's actually some other research on this as well outside of this book, but, but basically the book is about how we tend as humans we tend to engage in experiences that are comfortable and familiar to us, but people with, with ADHD, especially the tendency to stay in your comfort zone is a lot more common because of the executive functioning issues. And, and again, when, when you are struggling with executive functioning and you don't have that visual imagery what's going to happen is that it's hard for you to use your episodic memory to from one situation and apply it to a new situation. So that's going to create some anxiety and resistance to new experiences more so than if you were a neurotypical person. So again, if there are executive functioning issues, the resistance is going to be more common to, to those varied experiences but the, only, the key to actually building those skills that are going to allow them to build those executive functioning skills and functions more effectively in a bunch of different social situations that are going to allow them to build those connections really is just getting them out of their comfort zone. So as a person who has done masking myself and has struggled socially probably since I was a young child, um, when I was in kindergarten, I remember my mom freaking out and planning playdates for me because she was worried that I wasn't, I wasn't making friends and I wasn't really sure how to engage with kids. So this has been a lifelong struggle for me. And so I know that I tend to, if I don't have the right scaffolding in my environment, then I tend to really isolate myself and not engage with people. And that is, that is kind of my default tendency that I will do if I am not careful. And in the moment, and this is kind of what, what the book talks about, how in the moment it feels better, it feels comfortable. In the moment, it makes my brain happy, but only temporarily. It does not make me happy in the long run because what it does is it makes me more depressed because I'm isolated. And it also makes me less comfortable in a bunch of different experiences because, because I don't, I don't have, I don't have other experiences to create that new episodic memory. And I get less and less comfortable, the more, the more 
back into my comfort zone that I get. And so really, even though in the moment I don't feel like doing certain things, I know that it's better for me in the long run and that I'm going to experience less anxiety because I'm going to build that episodic memory and build those skills. I know that it's going to create less anxiety in the long run. So the whole issue of masking and camouflage for me personally is that, yes, there are certain situations where I just know it's going to be way too much. And I just choose not to engage in them because I just know it's going to be overwhelming and I know I'm going to need a break. And so I do avoid certain things and there are certain behaviors that I don't engage in because I just know that they don't come naturally to me. But on the other hand, there are certain times where I know that if I get too far into my comfort zone, it's actually going to cause me more stress in the long run. And this is where it's really important to find that balance of just getting out of your comfort zone versus doing only the things that are comfortable to you. And so this can be kind of a double-edged sword when we're, when we're thinking about being neurodiversity affirming, because if we never ask kids to do things that are non-preferred, we're never going to allow them to build up that tolerance to experiences that are new for them and allow them to be comfortable in that situation. In order to be comfortable in a situation, we have to experience it over and over again and build those skills. And so it does not serve kids in the long run if we only allow them to engage and we only require them to engage in situations that are familiar to them. We have to give them a lot of new experiences in order for them to apply these skills and in order for them to um, learn to build relationships with people. So that's really important to realize here because you are going to get some resistance from kids if something is uncomfortable for them. That doesn't mean that you're not being neurodiversity affirming. In fact, many times it's pretty normal to see that resistance when a child is, is engaging in a non-preferred task or an uncomfortable situation. And it's important to allow them to experience that because that's what's going to help them to work through some of these executive functioning issues and build the skills that they need in order to be successful. It doesn't mean that we're forcing them to mask or act in a way, you know, again, act neurotypical. It's always a choice that they make, but in order for them to be able to problem solve and read situations, they have to be in those situations. And so that's why this is really important to realize when we're working on these skills. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want to learn an entire framework for supporting executive functioning in a K-12 building, if you are a school clinician, if you're a speech pathologist, psychologist, social worker, counselor, occupational therapist, and you know that your students need support across the day, building relationships and just understanding how to read situations and problem solve, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership, where I teach you an entire framework for making that happen. Again, not just what you do in therapy, but also how you support kids across the day and conduct all the training and share information with your team to make that happen, as well as how you find the time to do all of those things. So to learn more about how you can put this in place in your building, go to drkarendudakbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. 
Again, that's drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in being a guest on the show or have a suggestion for a guest, then email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.